Hey everyone, it's Ryan here, host of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast, where I get to have conversations with some amazing people from all over the world who have stories to share, experiences we can learn from, and knowledge in areas we can use and apply to our lives to make us better and happier people. Each episode has a different topic, but all geared towards helping us along our own pursuit of happiness and helping us understand this journey we call life just a little better. We'll touch on everything from mental health to nutrition, diet, fitness, travel and adventure, relationships, and much, much more. Along this journey, I'll also experiment and apply some of the advice and information from my conversations to see how it affects me along my own pursuit of happiness and then report back to you all. Now, don't forget, if you enjoy this episode or any other episode, take a moment to subscribe, leave me a rating and a review. It's greatly appreciated and while also helping get these great conversations to even more listeners. On this episode, I get to welcome Eddie Burke Jr., an Alaskan native and professional dog musher. It's certainly not every day you get to talk to a professional dog musher, but this is a sport that I've always been somewhat intrigued by, hence the fact of me having multiple Huskies in my household right now. But Eddie Burke Jr. is actually being taught by one of the sport's best in the hopes of winning the Iditarod in the very near future. We talk about how Eddie got started being a dog musher. You know, that's definitely not a sport that's for everyone being in sub-zero temperatures all alone in the wilderness. So I made sure to ask Eddie about all the details that goes into professional dog mushing. All the races, how does he eat, how does he sleep, and best yet, all about the dogs. I got all the information about how Eddie chose his team, how they train, how they recover, what they eat. Trust me, I asked all the questions about the dogs because let's be real, Eddie, you're a star, but the dogs are the real star of the show. (laughs) But Eddie, honestly, thank you so much for taking time to do this. This is a sport that only so many people know about. So I loved having the opportunity of learning more about it and also spreading awareness. And the greatest thing about it all And the greatest thing about all of this is that he talks about how well the dogs are treated. I know there's a lot of misconception about the sport of dog mushing, and we talk about that as well. Being a dog lover myself, this was very important to hear. It's clear that Eddie loves his dogs, and it's also clear that Eddie is a rising star in the sport, and you're about to find out why. So without further ado, here is Eddie Burke Jr. So we have Eddie Burke Jr. here today. So Eddie, real quick, should I call you Eddie? Should I call you Junior? What, what should I call you Eddie's, in this podcast? Eddie's good. Eddie, Eddie, thank you so much for joining me. And I have another question for you. Is it the term professional dog musher, dog sledder? What is exactly the term for that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I said, professional dog mushers sounds a little glamorous, you know, but uh, I guess that's what I am. I, that's so cool. I'm, I've always been kind of fascinated by that. Um, it's one of the reasons I have two Huskies myself. Um, going to Alaska here in a few weeks. I've been to Alaska before. It's always just something that's been fascinating to me. So the fact that you're sitting down here with me is I, I'm, I'm honored 
And thank you so much for doing this. And I'm really interested to hear your story, to hear all about the races and, and your dogs, your team. Uh, but first and foremost, welcome. Thank you for joining. And uh, I would love for you to kind of tell me quickly, like how you got into this. Well, first off, thank you for uh, having me on and any opportunity to, I guess, spread the love and promote the sport. I'm all for it. So uh, I appreciate it. And I got into dog mushing. I mean, kind of on accident, really. Um, It started off with just me and a group of friends doing like a fantasy mushing type of thing. But, uh, you know, just like a group of buddies might do for fantasy football. And so we were betting on, yeah, (laughs) we we were betting on Iditarod. We decided to go down one night to the mushers banquet. Uh, That's where they do their, uh, the bib draw. They find out their starting order. So we went down there, we had some drinks. We uh, started talking trash to some mushers. We made a lot of friends, turned some heads that night. And it just kind of went from there. Um, And it went from this, just fun thing with buddies um, to starting a Facebook page, doing race updates and writing about sled dog news. And then I got invited out to some kennels and got to be around the dogs. And it just, it took me, I fell in love with it immediately. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm running races and here I am. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So pursuing the dream. What? So I, I do fantasy football and I'm pretty okay. sure I could never make the NFL <laughs> from that. <laughs> so what is the training? Like, like how long did this take from that night to you kind of race your first race? How long did that take? Oh, probably around five, five to six years. Okay. Okay. That um, makes sense. You know, I, I was just like a weekend warrior musher. And I'd go out to some kennels. I'd help run some dogs. Um, basically, just trying to be a sponge and learn as much about the sport as I can. Because um, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, so then, I guess, through this process, it, the opportunity for me to run a race became possible. So then I really dedicated myself and started transitioning from weekend warrior to more of a full-time musher. So where exactly are in Alaska are you located? So as far as in the wintertime when I'm training dogs, I'm based out of Nanana. Where's, where's so that's that? about 45 minutes to an hour south of Fairbank. And in the summertime, I live and work in Anchorage. So I spend my summers basically busting my butt, making money, and then uh, work in construction, asphalt, and then... I go north in September, I start fall training and I'm there all the way till April. So are you near Denali in the winter time? So Denali is probably about an hour and a half south of us. Okay. Something um, like that. No, that's awesome. So I have so many questions from <laughs> where we are in this timeline right now. So you met these we'll say other professional mushers that one yes. night at the banquet, you just kind of became like buddy, buddy with some of them. And from that, yep. you really kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. Um, I think it was probably on our second year at the banquet, we got invited 
to go run some dogs down the race chute, you know, so we've got to go behind the scenes, really interact with these, uh, with the sled dogs and the mushers. And I guess just kind of through this process, you learn what really goes into it, you know, the work, the training, what they encounter out there on the trail and uh, these challenges. And that, that had all really uh, grabbed my attention. And it was just like, this is something I think I can do. Yeah. I was going to ask you what drew you to that. Was there anything a little dive a little deeper, anything that specifically caught your attention? You know, I've always loved dogs. Uh, My parents growing up, we always had dogs. Um, They used to rescue and rehabilitate. uh, That's awesome. A lot of pit bulls, things like that. Uh, So training dogs, working with dogs, that was always something that I was used to. Um, And like pit bulls and sled dogs are almost pretty similar personalities, eager to please, high energy. They're working dogs, you know. Um, So it transitioned well into dog mushing. Yeah. I mean, I love being around dogs, so I completely understand that. And there's a (laughs) lot of questions I have about the dogs and your team and how they get ready for the season. But you know, as somebody who is not really familiar with the race season, I feel like we just hear about the Iditarod and that's Mm -hmm. it. So how many races would you say there are? And are they all around Alaska? Like when does the season start and end? So, I mean, there's dog races all over the world. Um, Your mushing season is probably from basically December, let's say, all the way till April 1st um, or first week of April. Um, and in between that you have anywhere there's sprint mushing, which is, a, I guess, a, basically a whole nother sport, another breed of dog, uh, okay. another type of training. And then there's mid distance and then long distance and mid distance and long distance all kind of go together. And basically your Iditarod mushers and Yukon quest mushers, they all, compete in these mid-distance races and use them to prepare or to get qualified for Iditarod. And then as far as races go, I mean, I mean, there's a ton all over the world. I, here in Alaska, I mean, there's at least several races every month, you know, December, January, February, March, um, and kind of ranging from all types of mileage and skill level, but there's as far as uh, the major mid distance races and that are, I did a rod qualifiers. I mean, I guess I could kind of walk you through those ones. Yeah, actually go through that. I'm curious. And one other thing I'm curious about too, is maybe you could add in there is, you know, like we'll bring it back to football because I do with everything, but um, you yeah. play every Sunday because you need to recover throughout the week. Like how much time do you need to recover and the dogs need to recover between some of these races? So as far as race time, you, one, it all depends on, I guess, how hard you're actually really racing. Hmm. You know, I mean, you, you could go put around the track and do a two to 300 mile race, give the dogs a week off and then go and do another two to 300 mile race. Now, if you're really trying to go for it and win, obviously it's going to be a little more physical for the dog. So therefore they're going to need a little more of a recovery time. Hmm. Um, 
but I mean, they're tremendous athletes. They, they recover in no time. I, I finished these 300 mile races and within 24 hours, they're barking and screaming again. And it looks like they never ran a race. So <laughs> it's crazy. I'm but familiar. It, but, um, it's it, crazy. it really is. Um, so late December, you start to encounter some Iditarod qualifiers, two to 300 mile races in late December. Um, then, the, then you go into the first of the year. Usually that's the connect 200. Uh, that's a 200 mile Iditarod qualifier. So these are all Iditarod approved races that, um, basically you have to have on your resume to even enter Iditarod to even sign up for it. Okay. So you have to have 750 miles of these races. Wow. Um, so then, yeah, you go into the connect 200, then you'll go into uh, mid to third week of January. You go into the Cusco 300. Um, that is probably the pinnacle of mid-distance racing, especially up here in Alaska. Okay. I mean, there's a big payout winner, twenty to $25,000 for a first place prize. You get the best of the best coming from around the world and all over Alaska, you know to compete in this race. Uh, so it's definitely uh, a very competitive one and um, a prestigious one, you know, and it's been around for a long time. Right. And is the Iditarod, would you say the Iditarod itself is almost like the Super Bowl? It's, it is. It is. The, it yeah, is. it is. And that's worldwide too. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, you got mushers from Norway, Italy, mm -hmm. you know, Germany, all over and around the U S as well. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool that, you know, we get people from all walks of life from all around the world, different cultures and everything like that. We come together and compete on one platform. And, and now would you say like Alaska? I mean, to me it is, but I don't know. Is Alaska like the home of dog sledding or is there another home, maybe Siberia or Russia that I'm not aware of? I mean, it's very popular in Norway as well, mm. but I mean, of course, we are the host of some of the, the biggest dog races in the world, Yukon Quest, Iditarod, and then, of course, these mid-distance races like the Cusco 300 or the Kobuk 440, the Quest 300. I mean, so, I mean, it, it's probably fair to say that, yeah, we might be the dog mushing, you know, capital of the world. Awesome. But uh, there's, there's plenty of other places, uh, even in the U.S., down in the lower 48s where they got the bear grease and, um, other, other major dog races like that. Are you familiar with one? So I was in Jackson hole last, um, let's say November. And I went to a dog kennel out there where they kind of do like excursions and stuff like that. Okay. But, but uh, the guy who runs it, um, super knowledgeable was, I mean, I did a ride multiple times. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't remember his name, but, uh, he was saying how there's a race that goes through, I believe Wyoming and Idaho, um, and back to Wyoming somehow. Are you familiar with a race that does okay, that? Okay. So like the stage stop. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That that's a, that's a major race there as well. Okay. Have you ever thought about racing in that one? No, uh, not as, not as of right now, maybe, you know, as I get things crossed off the list and, yeah. you know, accomplish some goals up here, then, uh, maybe I can start pursuing others. But okay. as of right now, my focus is uh, 
Cusco 300 this year and the Kobuck 440. And then next year I'll run Iditarod and um, we'll just go from there. I'm so happy. That's really, really <laughs> cool. And I'm going to be keeping tabs in the Iditarod this year. That's so cool that now that I know someone who's in it. What's the schedule like? Okay, so we're recording this in July. So let's just say from August, what does your schedule look like as far as preparing to run these races yourself and with your team? So fall training kicks off September 1st for our kennel. Some, some kennels will kick off, you know, mid-August or even earlier with some lighter training. But with temp still being pretty warm, um, you know, it's just I find it beneficial to start fall training in September. And it's plenty of time to prepare a, a, a dog team for a race, let's say, in December or, you know, mid to late January which will be my first race, the Cusco 300. And, um, and then, you know, I did a rod isn't until the first weekend of March. So there's plenty of time to prepare. So we start off with a five mile run and we just start building the base of the dogs, you know, working on tendons and muscles, getting everything tightened up. We're running at a slower speed and then it just gradually picks up from there. Now, what do you do personally to prepare for these races? Is there anything you physically have to do to get ready? Um, no, I, I think just the everyday process and lifestyle of dog mushing keeps you in fairly good shape. Yeah. Um, I try to stay active during the summertime. Uh, I work a, you know, labor intensive job. So I stay pretty fit. I used to be an athlete, you know, basically all, all through my life. So, uh, I have a good foundation on, on myself and then just the lifestyle of dog mushing. It, it, it keeps you in, keeps you in plenty good shape. Yeah, no, I imagine. Cause you do hear, like, I don't follow NASCAR much, but you do hear like NASCAR drivers are really good athletes, very good yeah. with endurance. Their heart is racing the whole time. They're super strong. Um, so I was just kind of wondering like how to relate that to like a dog musher. Like if it matters, like I honestly imagine like, your weight kind of matters because it's being pulled. I mean, maybe not by a whole team of dogs, maybe it doesn't matter that much, but perhaps the lighter you are, the faster you can I, go. I think it definitely plays a role. Yeah. Um, you look at a lot of these dog drivers and they're, um, they're not very big people, you know, there are a lot of these guys are probably 150, 60 pounds. Okay. Uh, they're all pretty lean. Um, there's a lot that compete in ultra marathons, half marathons all throughout the summer. Uh, they're biking, they're running. Um, yeah, they're, they're in good physical shape. Now there's some guys that are a little older and um, they don't really focus on their personal fitness as much, um, but they know the secrets of dog mushing and they've, they got the experience and they got the dog teams and, so it's kind of one of those things you can make as physical as you want, or you can uh, sit back and chill on the runners and enjoy the ride. <laughs> I kind of related, I kind of related what you just said, almost to like uh, horse jockeys, you know, they tend to be yeah. on the smaller side to ride the horse and go faster. So yep. yeah, I think that I, you'd have to really think that'd be a slight advantage as slight as it is. You know? I, I think it definitely plays a role. I mean, guys, when you're packing your sled, I mean, guys are weighing every little thing on there, you know, yeah. there's, uh, there's some famous quotes, like a, 
a toothbrush weighs too much when you get to the coast. There you go. <laughs> yes. Every pound really matters. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Th- I mean, and it, th- there's guys that, uh, I mean, Dallas Evie, he's, uh, you know, a five-time champion and, um, I've heard of him, you know, make, making sure he's under a certain, certain weight before, uh, he gets to the starting line, you know? Now, now do you emulate your style, uh, compared to anybody else that you look up to or? Um, well, I work directly with Aaron Burmeister and his kennel partner, Tony. So they have been huge mentors to me. And I mean, I try to watch everybody and I try to, you know, this guy might do something I like, that guy might do something I like. Um, so I guess through those early years of working with different mushers and just being around different kennels, you can kind of see everyone's process. Um, overall, everything's kind of the same, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, there's those fine details that are different. And when you're at a competitive level and at the highest level, it's those small little details that, that make the difference. Exactly. And I won't ask you to give away your secret sauce or those <laughs> yeah. little details you got, but for somebody like myself who just thinks kind of like you hop on a slide and you go fast and whoever's fast wins, what are maybe some of those details that we just don't really know about, or we should look for when we watch the Iditarod? Well, there's, there's just so much to it and it, and it's a whole training season, you know, I mean, everything you do from September up until race day matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could do one training run that might've been a little too intense before your race and there goes your shot of, you know, when, and I did a run and it could be a month before the race, you know? Um, uh, so managing your dog team is probably the biggest thing I have learned um, throughout this entire process and managing it from September all the way up until April, Hmm. keeping those dogs at their peak performance. And it's a, you know, it's, it's tough to do. And especially like you want to get out there, you want to run, you see your dogs are hyped up. They want to run. So like the adrenaline's going, you're in training mode, you know, you're hungry. You want to win these races. Uh, but sometimes you gotta, you know, like, uh, my mentor, Aaron and, uh, basically training partner, kennel partner, you know, he's like, Hey, I gotta, gotta put a harness on you sometimes. And like, reel you back, like just pump the brakes. He was like, I love the energy, but we're going to have to calm it down a little bit, you know, let's take a day off. <laughs> I, like I said, I'm familiar and I live in like, you know, where it's hot in the summer here in Carolina. So when it's like cold like that, I know my Huskies go nuts. Yep. So yeah, I know you don't necessarily have a team of Huskies. When, when people think of the Iditarod and, and you know, sled dogs, they think of the prototypical Siberian Husky or a lot the Malamutes. So your team specifically, what is your team specifically made up of like the different breeds? I imagine they're probably a mix of like mutts and, and different uh, types of dogs. So your Iditarod race dog is it's what we call an Alaskan Husky. So it's mixed with um, pointer and greyhound and basically your Siberians. And 
this has been, I guess, a mix and process for decades. And now it's been really fine-tuned. And uh, now you have CV bloodlines and you got Jeff King bloodlines and you got, you know, all these kennels got their, you know, kind of special uh, line of, uh, of Alaskan Huskies. But that's basically, you know, what we're working with. Hmm. And they're, uh, I mean, they, they're very similar to like your Siberian. They're just a little more leggier, hmm. a little more narrow in the shoulders, longer, longer bodied, uh, just a more athletic, faster moving dog. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I know like the Husky is a little, obviously there's a Husky for lack yeah. of a, a better, better term or <laughs> pun intended, however you want to say that. But, uh, yeah, when I was up in Alaska before I started to learn a little more about the, the Alaskan Huskies and how they are a mix and the mix mm-hmm. is, you know, what makes it more efficient as far as power and strength and speed. Um, I know my Huskies are enough to freaking handle. I can't imagine a dog that's even faster than my two. It'd be insane. Yeah. They're, they're a hybrid, you know, yes, exactly. and they've made this super dog basically mm. over, yeah. over decades of, of breeding. Do you agree with that? Do you agree they are the super dog or if you could tweak something or throw another breed in there, would you even consider doing that? I, I mean, people have experimented, um, trying to put more like race hounds in there. And it's, I think, uh, I, th- I think we've, I think the people of mushers have figured it out. I mean, the sled dogs we have now are amazing and the sled dogs they had 20, 30 years ago were, were amazing as well. I don't really know if the dogs are any better than they were 30 years ago. Um, there's just, I think more of them now. Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of glad you said that because the first, the first thing that comes to mind is how like a human would performance enhance an animal. Mm-hmm. And like when you run the Kentucky Derby, you know, like just last year they were found positive for a drug and out of curiosity, like, is that an issue with sled dogs? Do you ever find drug enhancement being a problem? No, uh, not that I've encountered. Um, I, I don't even think there'd be a reason to, I mean, these dogs are absolutely amazing. And, um, yeah, it's just a special breed. They they don't need any extra help. (laughs) (laughs) That's um, I'm glad to hear that. I'm an animal lover. I I hate hearing when things like that happen just for the benefit of a race. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's uh, strict drug testing, great, uh, all throughout these races. Um, so the, the room for that isn't there. And plus uh, the people in the dog mushing community, uh, I don't think they'd tolerate it either. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Now I have so many more questions for you and about the dogs, but what comes to mind first is we just kind of talked about speed. How fast are you going on one of these sleds at maximum speed? Well, it, it all depends, I guess, on the terrain, the trail. Uh, now, when, let's say, we're headed out for a race or a training run, once again, our job is to manage these dogs. Mm. Now, if we just pull the hook 
and let them rip out of the out of the kennel or off the starting line, I mean, they'll go way above, you know, 20 something miles an hour. Mm. Um, and that's flying and through a tight twisty or downhill type, uh, terrain might be a little dangerous as well. Um, you'd be, be smashing into a spruce tree in no time, but, um, (laughs) you know, and then also the dogs aren't going to be able to maintain 20 something miles an hour for, for very long. So our sweet spot is to basically run a dog team at 10 miles an hour. Now you get on some hard, fast trail. Okay. You can let them roll a little bit and let them get up to 11 or 11 and a half. And then, you know, let them do that for a few miles. And then you get back on the drag, slow them down and get them settled into that, you know, nine and a half to 10 and a half mile an hour, uh, pace, um, for, for, I guess myself and my dog team. Now everybody's dog team is different and everyone's dogs are gated different. So it's all about kind of running your dogs to their, you know, I, to the best of their abilities, what fits them. How do Some you teams do that? might perform better at a nine mile an hour pace, you know, as far as their gates go. Yeah. I'm wondering like, how do you do that? Because, you know, as a human, when you, let's say run a mile in eight minutes, you know, you got to push mm-hmm. it. How do you push your dogs more or hold them back more? And how do you know how to do that? So it all starts with the training um, from their first hookup, you know, and from September on. So when we get on the four wheelers and we start training um, here in the fall time, with that four wheeler, you have a lot of control. So you're getting them set into this 10 mile an hour pace. Okay. And then with that, they're, you know, you're doing this on a regular basis. So it's like, okay, this is our sweet spot. This is where we like to travel. Of course, they're going to try to, you know, go flying out of the gate, you know, like a bunch of wild animals, but you know, you tell them you have commands like, whoa, easy. And they respond and it's the leader's jobs. You know, they're like, okay, dad wants us to slow down a little bit. We'll, we'll calm down. And we have brakes on the sleds, mm-hmm. so we can uh, we can control that as well. Control the speeds with the brakes, drag mats, and um, so yeah, it's just kind of that process is how we do it. Now, this might be a really stupid question, but as far as I know, I don't think I've ever seen like a speedometer or an odometer on one of, on a slide. Do you have that on there to keep tabs on that? So we have a GPS, and okay. that does have your mile per hour on there. So I like to use, it's a great training tool Okay. and, uh, keeps everybody honest. You know what you're doing and, um, uh, you know how hard the dogs are working, but I mean, you could hop on a sled without one and you know, your dogs and you know, their gates, you can just look at them and know if you're going too fast or too slow. I was going to say GPS is fairly recent in the history of dog sledding, you know, so obviously yeah. they were doing that before. Yep. So it's all kind of done by eye and feel. And, um, just like, I guess there's commands to slow them down. There's, you know, commands to, to speed them up as well. And so it could be simple as a saying, just good dogs that gets them all wound up and (laughs) they'll go, you know, two, three miles an hour faster with that. Or Mm. you give them a, that's it. Or, you know, everybody's got their, little uh, call-ups that they do and their little noises that they might make on the back of their sleds to get their dog team all amped up and pick up the speed. 
Now, what are like, would you say the universal commands are for anybody who's watching? So when they hear perhaps on the TV, like what exactly you're saying? So Ji and Ha is your, your right and left. Um, so those are your biggest commands. And then like, whoa, and easy. Whoa is obviously to stop, you know, easy, get them to slow down a little bit. And then um, Ji and Ha. G and ha. Now, yep. where did that come from? Do you have any idea? Because that's not well, I, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, uh, I know, um, horse trainers and I guess, yeah, horseback riders and stuff, they, they use it as well. So I'm not sure exactly where it all originated, but I, yeah. I know it, uh, it is used in that world as well. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, my guess, at least with G is almost, it's probably easy to hear. It's not a command that's super difficult for a dog to hear and understand. Maybe that has something to do with it. I I have no idea, but it, keeping commands simple is uh, obviously, you know, yep. a good thing. Yep. I'm actually <laughs> have gone through months of training recently with my two Huskies and it's really kind of one word commands just come sit heal yep stay yeah no reason yeah. to to use full sentences or anything like that uh but they're extremely smart they they know what you're talking about and yeah they know what you want them to do <laughs> do they ever have issues hearing you as far as like wind or like blizzard conditions i haven't no they have incredible hearing i mean you can be pretty quiet back there and you know, with a string of 12 to 14 dogs, I mean, they're, it's quite a ways up there depending on all your gang line sections, you know, um, but there are ways up there and you can be, you can be pretty quiet. You can basically just whisper and you know, they'll hear you. They are incredible. <laughs> they're incredible animals. So one question I kind of skipped over that I'm curious to know is how many dogs are on a team? So different races have different, uh, maximum dog limit. So Iditarod, it's a 14 dog limit. Um, a lot of these mid distance races, they're 10 to 12 dog limits. Is there a big benefit or drawback to having more or less dogs? I guess having more dogs to a certain point, I think 14, 16 dogs is basically that, that sweet spot. Um, 18 dogs, you kind of start losing sight of them. And it, it's, it's a lot to manage. It's, um, it's more to care for in the checkpoints. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of the, the downfall. Mm -hmm. And I think anything more than eight, eight or more dogs is, uh, is plenty. You have plenty of power, plenty of speed. Uh, I personally like keeping my training teams into, 10 to 12, um, I guess, size teams, 10 to 12 dogs per team. And it keeps everyone honest. It's enough to where you can travel at the speeds that you want. You can climb all the hills and mountains you want. Um, but you're not, you don't have so many dogs in there where dogs can basically take a break. You know, everybody's getting the most out of their training. So that's kind of like my ideal dog team size is, Anywhere from, yeah, that eight to 12. Okay. And so does that mean you have alternates or what happens like if a dog gets injured and can't make the race? 
So usually, let's just say a, a team that's trained for Iditarod, they're probably starting their season off with 20 to 24 dogs, and it gets narrowed down as the season goes. So you're basically running like two teams all the way up until Iditarod, and then you're picking the best of the best. Okay. Now, is it like um... – so the front is the front more speed focused and the back is more power focused. How do you pick what dog goes where in your lineup? Each dog has their, uh, some dogs can run anywhere in the team. Um, but some perform better in the back. Like you were saying, I mean, yeah, of course you want your, uh, smoothest traveling, hard driving dogs up in the front of the team. Also more leader personality type dogs. Um, as well. So of course those dogs are in the front. Your, you have what you call your team dogs. They're in the middle. And then you have your wheel dogs. Those are in the back and your wheel dogs are usually, you know, those are your powerhouses. So what indicators are you looking for when you're going through training and you're like, okay, you're going to be the one who goes up front you're going to be the one who goes in the back. What are the indicators you look for? I mean, they, they all kind of, I guess, they all show you, you know, w- <laughs> what they can do out there, you know? And it's, uh, I, I guess it would be like with football or something. It's like, hey, this guy's a running backer. This guy's a lineman. And yeah. uh, this guy's the quarterback. Um, it just, when you start going through those training processes, you have your standouts. And obviously your standouts are going to, okay, well, let's work with you in a leader position. Let's throw you up there. And then sometimes they, they thrive. Sometimes they don't. And it's like, okay, let's try you here in the middle of the team or in the back of the team. Let's see where you perform best. So uh, there's a lot of little signs, I guess, that they give you. And it's just our job to pick up on it and enhance their abilities. Okay. So would you say like, maybe like the first few months of training is kind of somewhat trial and error to see how you guys perform? For sure. Especially with a younger team. Um, there's, there's a lot of, I guess, behavioral training, especially with like a yearling team. Um, you're just trying to get everybody on the same page because they're just wild puppies at that point. Right. And then once you get everybody kind of settled in and in a nice groove and rhythm, then you can kind of start working. Okay. Where do you succeed best? Where do you benefit the team? And, uh, you know, what place do you enjoy the most as well? Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you can definitely tell the dogs gave you the body language and the signs. I'm, I'm familiar yep. with that when they're happy with, with where they're at. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I've always compared it or, and it was always thought of it as, uh, raising kids i have a daughter i have a nine-year-old and i'm like this is this is no different you (laughs) you know when they're when they're upset when they're sad when they're playing games with you when they just want to be uh you know little shits or whatever (laughs) you know you you can just pick up on it Uh, i don't i don't have any kids of my own but someday probably (laughs) but i tell people listen i got two crazy kids at home two furry kids i mean i i know it's i know humans are different but at the same time there's so many similarities yeah exactly Exactly. And mine talk all the time. I'm sure you have huskies and dogs that They're just vocal, constantly talk vocal group. all the time, <laughs> all the time. And what, so a question I have for you too, is 
going back to that night where you got kind of hooked on this, how did you wrangle up a team of dogs from that point? What was the process of that? So just going out to kennels and then I started spending more time at one particular kennel and then the opportunity of me running a race, he was like, Hey, you know, you should, uh, you should run this race. And I was like, yeah, heck yeah. Sign me up. Let's do it. You know? And then, so that's where the weekend warrior musher went to more full time um, because you really got to dedicate yourself uh, to prepare for a race and you need to establish that bond with the dogs. You need to know what you're doing. You need to be prepared uh, to handle all types of situations. And the only way to gain that experience is to just get out there on the runners and be out there on the trail. How long did it take for you to put your first team together? And I would love to know how you performed in your first race with all of them. So the actual first race that I was supposed to do never came to light. That race didn't happen. Um, so it was the following year where I, uh, went to Aaron Burmeister's kennel who took second place in this year's Iditarod. Wow. And, um, he gave me the opportunity. He said, Hey Eddie, I got some, uh, young dogs here. They don't really have any training. They have no race experience. Um, basically they're as green as can be. And they're just a wild group of dogs that are eager to run. He goes, but if you would like to, you know, take on this challenge, um, I'd be happy to get you all your Iditarod qualifiers and um, run Iditarod. So I was like, okay, wow. And, it, you know, this was a little bit of a process as well. Um, he had invited me out to his kennel for just uh, to kind of help out um, on my free time. So this was just something, an opportunity that I saw uh, to learn from, you know, one of the best dog drivers out there and mm-hmm. to work with uh, top quality dogs. So I went out there on my free time, started helping. And then he made me this offer where he was, said, Hey, I'm not going to be in dogs much longer. So, but I want to keep my kennel going. I want to keep the name, the program, everything out there, my bloodlines going. And I need a, basically a jockey. And uh, so I was like, okay. And wow. he was like, after, you know, watching you and working with you for a bit. And he goes, I'd like to give the opportunity to you. So I came aboard, I moved into Nana and that's where I started this process with uh, his young team and started training those guys. And I did three races with them last season. And I started in September and our first race was uh, February, uh, I think fourth was her, was her uh, first race. And it was a 300 mile. I did a rock qualifier. How, how did that go? Tell me more about that. It went good. It was, uh, I think there was 41 teams, 42 teams, uh, a lot of Iditarod mushers in there. So a lot of, you know, good talent. And then right. there was also, um, a lot of handlers, you know, basically, uh, the handlers are, you know, what we call the other mushers that are there working at the kennel and help running and training dogs. Um, so there, you had a lot of those, you had a lot of rookies. It was a, it was a mixed group of talent. And I think out of the 41, 42 teams, I placed 13th. Wow. Solid for your first race. So, That's awesome. Yeah. 
no, we were extremely happy and we were by no means trying to be competitive either. So it was a little bit of a, of a surprise that I was actually in the front half of the, of the race. And then, uh, you know, when you're training a young team, you're just trying to make everything a positive experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just showing them, Hey, this is a race. This is, uh, the race environment and let's just go out there. Let's have fun. So the next year when you can actually race these dogs, when they're at a, let's say a three-year-old age, that's when their bodies are fully developed and you can actually, you can actually, uh, you know, run a race schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. this, this first year was just more of a have fun with them and mm -hmm. show them the ropes. So then I went to my second race, which was the following week. And that was the Yukon quest 300. And that, that was a, a very fun race with, um, it shows you everything too. It, it, it's got, it's got some good obstacles in it. Um, a great trail and it's a, it's a good learning experience. So I went into that race and I placed six in the, uh, quest 300. And then in March I went and, uh, competed in a 200 mile race in Denali and I placed first in that one. And that oh, was, I did a rod map. I'm talking like, to a champion. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that, that was an, I did a rod qualifier there. And I, I figured now that they have two 300s under their belt, it's the last race of the season for us. I was like, let's go for it. That's and, uh, awesome. They were ready. So Aaron Burmeister clearly saw something special in you. You're his somewhat of a protege. And you seem to be proving them right. Like, is it usually, <laughs> I'm not going to say this easy, but do rookies usually kind of place this high and progress that fast? Um, I, probably not. I mean, I, I don't think it's the most common thing, uh, but I don't want to say I'm something special and it's never happened before. I mean, uh, I, I think I'd like to think that I'm working with a good group of dogs and, you know, I got some good mentors and, um, I put in the work, you know, um, I'm dedicated to this sport and I'm giving it my all. So I That's think awesome. it's paying off. And when you say 300 miles, just so people can understand, like how many days does that equate to? So a 300 mile race, you're competing or completing that anywhere from probably depending on the trail conditions and the environment, um, anywhere from like 38 hours, 36 hours at the fastest up to 40 something hours. If you're being competitive, are you sleeping at all? Or are you just going straight through? So on these 300 mile races, I probably get two hours of sleep to two and a half hours of sleep on a 200 mile race. I don't sleep at all. Where are you sleeping on a 300 mile race? Like, are you bringing a tent? Like, what does that look like? Are you just pulling over and just <laughs> plopping in the snow? You're like, forget it. I'm just two hours. is not worth my time. Um, so on a usual year, you have like indoor checkpoints, things like that, where you can go crash on the floor somewhere for like a half hour okay. or an hour. Um, this year with COVID, it, a lot of races didn't have indoor checkpoints or indoor facilities. Um, so it was a lot of sleeping outside. 
uh, like the 200 mile race that I won, there was no indoor checkpoints on that race. Uh, so it's just sleeping outside with your dogs or on your dog sled in a sleeping bag and uh, cuddling up and <laughs> embracing the cold. That's commitment. It's not comfortable. You know? That's commitment. And I got to ask about food, your food and the dog's food. What are you eating and when, and what are the dogs eating and when? So I, it's hard to eat, but I try to, you got to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, the dogs are always coming first. That's always your number one priority. But in order to care for them and in order to be alert, and to have a clear thought process and, you know, keep yourself warm and hydrated, you know, you, you got to eat. So it's uh, when I'm in the checkpoints or maybe I'm on a long stretch of trail that's pretty mellow and not too technical, you know, I'll reach my sled, I'll grab some snacks like salmon strips or moose jerky or, you know, things like that. And the dogs uh, don't turn around. They're not like, that smells good. I want some of that. <laughs> Mine would. <laughs> no, you know, sometimes they, you'll see a ear, ear twitch and they'll kind of, <laughs> Oh, that's it. You know, but they get used to this process. Okay. Um, so you've done this all season with them. And so it's just like, Oh, we're going straight down the trail. Dad's mm-hmm. just back there doing his, doing his usual stuff. So, uh, they don't really pay too much attention to me. Uh, so I'll try to snack on the trail, drink some water. And then when I'm in the checkpoints, that's when I try to eat a meal. Um, so usually a checkpoint camp that will be about four hours. So you'll have anywhere from like, let's say a 40 mile run to an 80 mile run. And that'll be basically nonstop, uh, with some little micro breaks in there for snacking the dogs. Um, and then you'll pull in and you'll do like a four to six hour camp or depending, you know, at what part of the race you're in. So during that four hours, um, it's bed the dogs down, get them fed, go over them, check for any injuries or soreness, you know, work all those out. Once you've done all that, now it's like, okay, I can eat a little meal. So basically we do, um, what do they call those? I always vacuum sealed bags and I put food in there. Well, it it could be anything, chili, lasagna, a steak. I throw that in our cooker, uh, the same cooking pot that I, uh, cook the dog food in (laughs) and uh, (laughs) it's just hot boiling water. And I throw the, uh, vacuum sealed bag in there. It heats up the food and, you know, I eat out of a plastic bag and there's my meal. Now for someone who needs the dogs to perform at this level as a dog owner myself, I'm curious to know what you feed your dogs. So their diet is very temperature. Um, it, it very temperature dependent. Um, so if it's warm, they're going to get more of a leaner, uh, meat diet. Every, we basically feed a, uh, a raw food, a raw meat diet with a little bit of kibble. Um, and there's some supplements in there, you know, your vitamins and things like that. Uh, but basically just your raw meat and some kibble and depending on the temps, like I said, is the amount of your fat ratio or, you know, whether you're using beef or more of a fattier type meat or that type of thing. 
I, um, well, I lost my girl Coda at the age of 15 and a half last year and supplements was something that, you know, I was giving her the last few years of her life just to kind of mm-hmm. keep her comfortable, keep her moving. And, you know, my girlfriend has a dog, um, who's 10 now and nine, nine, well, I'll say nine, 10 years old. And, um, you know, I'm just curious to know what supplements you give your dogs to keep moving so well. Um, there's definitely some, uh, there's different types of joint supplements that you can give them, um, which always helps. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it's, uh, just for their immune systems Mm -hmm. and, uh, like a zinc and it like, it's really not that complex, you know, it's kind of like giving their, your dogs their multivitamin and a raw meat diet and they're good to go. Um, but there are some different types of joint supplements and things like that, that, uh, some mushers find very beneficial. And, um, do you have any ideas out there? Any clue? Uh, yeah, there's, I'm, ha- I'm having a, a hard time right now coming up with the name of it. Um, but if I think of it all, yeah, yeah, please do. you know. Just because but, uh, like, you know, I see athletes perform and they're performing at the highest level of human, any human alive. And mm-hmm. I'm always curious to know, you know, what are the little things? What are the supplements they're taking? What are their diet consists of to perform at that level? And we all want our dogs who are part of our family to mm-hmm. perform and, and to thrive and to live long, healthy lives. So I'm always curious to know what somebody with your stature and dogs of, you know, that perform this well, I'm always curious to know what they eat. Yeah. I think supplements definitely give that slight edge, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's like, why not? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not going to do anything. Uh, you know, yeah. It, yeah. It's only going to be beneficial for sure. So even if it's just the slightest amount. Yeah. Um, but it, their diets are pretty simple. Um, and they're very temperature dependent. And, um, I think just with that and not overfeeding and knowing the quantities, uh, for your dogs and keeping them at proper weight. Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of the, just the, the basics of it, you know, how many so, pounds of, how many pounds of food are you leaving with when you first leave for a race? Yeah. Um, well, I'm probably, it, it depends on the runs because we're snacking. We're giving each dog basically a quarter pound snack every two hours. Wow. So just imagine you're traveling 20 miles in a two hour time period. So you can just kind of factor that out um, with, you know, and then times your quarter pound snacks for your 12 to 14 dogs. And then if, you know, you got a 60 mile run or mm-hmm. a 80 mile run, you know, you're just, Basically every two hours, every 20 miles, I'm throwing out a quarter pound snack to these guys. And then when we pull into a checkpoint, now they're getting a full meal. Mm. And that full meal will consist of, you know, basically your raw beef, beef fat, and then, um, you know, whatever supplements or powders someone might want to use, egg powders, things like that. Now, when you say you have like a four hour layover, so when you kind of have your meal and you give the dogs your meal, is that time limit kind of based on you and the rest you think you need and your team needs, and then you go when you're ready or does everybody kind of go at like around the same time? 
Um, so I think a lot of guys are on the kind of the same race schedule, same training program. You know, it's like, unless it's a mandatory layover and then it's like a six or an eight, you know, uh, just depending on the race. Um, but yeah, usually that's kind of the run rest ratio. Okay. Uh, you know, you run for, let's say four to six hours and you're going to rest for four hours. And, you know, that's just kind of the, their time clock. Okay. And when you're out for so many hours, just kind of standing on a sled, do you have music on you? Do you have anything or is it for your silence (laughs) for a training run? Um, I play music, you know, when I'm going, when I'm leaving the kennel and, uh, I'll play music, but at a race, it's too difficult to, I don't know, keep iPhones charged and things like that. So I just enjoy the silence and watch the dogs and, taking the scenery, a lot of self-reflecting, uh, you know, probably think a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You you got all the time in the world. Have you thought about like writing a book in any of your experiences? I imagine like just standing (laughs) or thinking about all the chapters you can write. (laughs) I mean, I've never been much of a writer, but, uh, (laughs) I mean, yeah, the thoughts are endless. So it's, it's impressive what comes to mind when you're out there on the trail. I, the memories are by yourself. You know, yeah. Yeah. You're by yourself. It's silent as can be the dogs, you know, they're, they're performing, they're doing their jobs. Then mm-hmm. it's just sitting back and enjoying the ride and taking in the scenery. And now is it like your GPS kind of like also your get out of jail card? If like you take a wrong trail, like you get lost or something happens to you. Is that how you're found? So all sleds have a tracker when you're on a race um and there's basically an sos button on that uh on that tracker so if a musher does get lost or if they get in a really bad situation and they need you know a rescue team to come get them they can hit that button um but i mean it definitely happens with guys taking wrong trails and taking wrong turns um but usually you can kind of figure it out and mm. get yourself turned back around. Now we've been talking about two or 300 mile races here. So mm-hmm. the Iditarod is how far? A thousand, a thousand miles. Wow. And uh, basically from Willow, Willow, Alaska to Nome. And, and there's two different routes. They okay. alternate every year, but basically a thousand miles. And uh and I, so I'm familiar with the story behind it for the most part, but for people who are listening to this that are unfamiliar about the Iditarod and the history and why it's a thing, perhaps you could just take a moment to tell people how that was created. Um, I mean, I'm not too, too much of a historian on it all, but um, so, I mean, yeah, I guess you could go back to like the original serum run mm-hmm. uh, where People have, you know, heard of Balto and seen the movies um, or uh, Togo, Togo. You know, I like that one. That was a good one. Yeah, I have I've yet to, uh, to see it, but uh, I've heard good things. But so, you know, I guess there's that history all the way back. Um, what that was in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. I forget the date. 
Um, but uh, Joe Reddington and a group of guys, basically, they wanted to preserve and save the sport of dog mushing. And so they, what the first race was in the night was 1970 was in 1973 so i want to do a little bit of research here so 1925 was the seum run to yes Nome. but so the first uh, official i did a rod i believe 1973 first i did a rod i love googling it's 1973 boom right Bam. on that got it <laughs> uh, so Joe Reddington, the founding father of the Iditarod, you know, wanted to save the sport. And uh, alongside with a, with a numerous group of guys, uh, decided they were going to put on a race to Nome. And they were, this is where people from all over the state of Alaska could showcase their dog teams and take on the toughest terrain of Alaska and um, show us what they had, you know. Are you ready and, for that? Like <laughs> everything? Yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm pumped. I've been putting in a lot of work and yeah. it's, it's a dream. It's a goal and I'm really looking forward to it all. Uh, so that's kind of, I guess, how it started and it's been going on. Of course, the sport has evolved and changed in some aspects, but I mean, basically it's just man and dog or woman and dog. There's yeah. uh a large group of female mushers out there that are kicking ass. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but yeah, man and dog taking on Alaska's toughest terrain for a thousand miles to know. Um, is there a part of the Iditarod that you would say concerns you the most looking ahead? Is there anything for the dogs you or terrain or anything that's slightly concerning? No. Um, I mean, you definitely hear about certain aspects of the trail. Um, that people, you know, say is very technical or it's a little scary, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's a thousand miles. So I guess the biggest concern for me is just managing my dog team, mm-hmm. you know, for nine days, eight days and keeping them at their, their healthiest and their best and positive attitudes. So I think that's the, that's the biggest challenge right there. And then keeping myself up as well. Yeah. Um, because your dogs feed off of you. And it sounds like you have an awesome mentor with Aaron as well. So having somebody who's kind of done it and has really placed a second, his best place or has he ever yes. won it? Yeah. Second is his best place. Um, he's been in the top three. Um, he's taken third, second. Um, he's, he's been in the top 10 here for, for a long time now. Um, Does that eat him alive? Is he okay with that? Or is it just killing him? (laughs) He's he's hungry. That's for sure. Uh, Are you facing him? Are you going to go against him? No. So he's running this year. I'll be running the following year. So Um, he's handing it over. Okay. Yep. So it'll be kind of pass of the torch there. Um, So I won't be facing him, but um, yeah, I, I have uh, big hopes for him and, I think he's going to, I think he's going to do really well. That's he's awesome. got an awesome dog team. I know who I'm rooting for now. Now, do you guys like get like sponsors? How does that work? So they're sponsors is what keeps a lot of kennels alive and keeps these races alive. Um, they play a major role 
dog mushing isn't cheap. It's, I mean, people spend a hundred thousand dollars a year on their kennels, you know, with dog food, traveling to races, entering Iditarod. Um, people say just to run Iditarod alone, it's about 20 grand. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> it's not a, it's not a cheap, you know, eight to 10 day adventure. Uh, sign up fees are 4,000 entry wow. fees just to enter the race. But with all the gear, the food, the logistics, um, you know, uh, accommodations for traveling and your handlers and things like that. Once you get to know them, uh, you're there for a while. You got to let your dogs rest. You need to have a handler and some sort of assistance up there. Once your dogs get in, um, the veterinarian bills, of course, you know, uh, it's, it's expensive. I mean, I think people can look just at their one house pet that they own, you know, and yeah. if you've ever taken them to the vet or, mm-hmm. you know, the cost of kibble and, you know, you're feeding these dogs, uh, top notch kibble and beef and salmon and she fish and, you know, beaver, they get, they're eating chicken and mm-hmm. all these, uh, different various types of foods and the supplements and the vitamins, all of that, you know, so it, it just adds up. So when you get a sponsor, where do they place their logo? Like, are you wearing their logo or is it on your sled? Like, so I'm thinking like, obviously like NASCAR again, it's all over the car. Yeah. It, it's similar, similar situation. So yeah. yeah, you'll see a lot of these mushers. They'll have, um, they'll have patches and, uh, patches on their sleds or stickers, things like that. All over you, their dog trucks. How do you get, yeah. How do you go out and get sponsors? Just reaching out. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people will reach out to you. I was going to say, is but, that up to you? Because I imagine some sports and some leagues sponsors are dying to get to the athletes. Whereas, you know, dog mushing might be the opposite if you're reaching out to others, you know? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't think us mushers are really hot commodities, you know, for. <laughs> well, the key for, is like, if it's televised, like, so is the Iditarod like globally televised at all? Like if we it's get not, guys, I mean, it, it might make your local news, you know, a little yeah. clip, like so-and-so wins the Iditarod or the right. Iditarod started today. Um, so you'll get some little news updates and especially here in Alaska, we do. And, you know, it's in the paper every day, but. I'm sure in California or something like that, it's not really uh, part of their local news or. So that televised. makes me, that makes me wonder from your perspective, do you, is the sport growing or is it descending? Um, it's alive and it's, I mean, it's still well, Yeah. It, but I don't think it's at its peak, mm. you know? Um, it's definitely taken some hits over the years. Iditarod has uh, lost sponsors. Um, so some of that has made it a little more difficult because, you know, it takes a lot of money to put these races on and uh, it takes a lot of money for these mushers to keep their kennels going and programs going. So mm. it's, it's difficult. The, the money aspect definitely plays a big role. Sponsors pulling out, mm. um, you got some wacko animal rights groups that uh, don't help out as well. Yeah. I'm actually curious to get to that point in just a moment, but the fact that obviously this is very location based and like seasonal based, 
obviously Mm -hmm. doesn't help grow a sport super fast, you know? So it has to be really popular within the season that you're in. And if your sponsors are pulling out, that certainly doesn't help. And why is that? Is that purely because of money or does the animal um, issue that you just brought up have a big role in that? Um, I think they've probably put some pressure on some corporations um, to where, you know, they probably look at it as, okay, just to avoid some, some trouble here, yeah. some conflict. We'll just, we'll pull out. Um, and then also just money um, with, with other corporations of, they're like, Hey, we sponsored for 10, 15 years and we're going to go onto this now. Mm, okay. um, so there's been some of that. I, I guess it's a mix. Um, but it's, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough sport to, I guess, really promote and grow and Mm -hmm. get people into it. It's, um, I don't really have the answers, I guess, to, to what direction, you know, uh, the people in charge, you know, would say of I did rod or you conquest for some of these organizations, um, where they should take it and, you know, get this sport back on track, but. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear more ideas and how to make that happen because you do see horse racing still doing pretty well. Like every time you turn on the Kentucky Derby or, you know, any of those races, there's a full house, the celebrities in the house, people betting thousands of dollars. Like, um, yeah, I, I remember you saying how you did, we're doing like fantasy and talks like, which is freaking awesome. <laughs> like, is there gambling? Is gambling kind of like legal, like up there and all? Is that? It's legal? not. Um, but I mean, that could be something that could help. Um, but you know, it's it's not a sport you can really watch, and I think that's like, yeah, one of the the toughest things, you know. And it's outside in the cold, and you know, and it's in such remote areas of Alaska, to where it's. Um, not that accessible to the public, you know, until let's say after the race and, you know, these guys that have been out on the trail filming and things like that, they can put it out there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a difficult race to sponsor and advertise. And there's not a whole lot of room on a dog sled or on a musher, you know, to put your big billboard, you know, I guess the race in my mind right now that I'm comparing this to is the tour de France. Um, but obviously that's on roads and where the roads, there's cars and you mm-hmm. know, helicopters, the cameras and checkpoints Yeah, and easier. Hmm. Yeah. So I think that's been one of the struggles. Um, of course, like the ceremonial start in Anchorage and then the official restart in uh, Willow are um, very accessible and people can come and watch shows and it does draw huge crowds Mm. uh, from, you know, fans from all over the U S and all over the world and also local fans as well. Um, But once those mushers leave those destinations, then it's uh, they're kind of in the dark, you know, they're out there all alone and there's just basically your, I did a rod trail cruise and, the veterinarians and, you know, people at the checkpoints and in between the the villages and the, yeah, all your different checkpoints are just, it's no one's out there. 
What about like GoPros or anything? Do does anybody bring cameras? Yeah, there, I I think you see uh, some mushers definitely filming, you know, their own personal footage. Yeah. And uh, there's definitely some cool clips out there. Yeah, that's probably really good for personal branding too. Like, um, I was yeah. introduced to you. I want to give a shout out to Erica Smith. Um, we just did the uh, a podcast a few weeks ago, the Alaska Outdoor Girl, and she brought up your name. And so I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. I have to take his <laughs> name down. I need to contact him because I'm interested in talking to him. Um, but yeah, like you take some clips like that and post it on like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. That probably, I guess, help with sponsors. It does. Um, and help. Yeah. Like you said, self-branding and mm-hmm. yeah. Shout out to Erica. Cause, uh, I actually reached out to her. I listened to your guys's podcast and then, uh, so I gave her a thank you and, um, yeah, she's got a pretty cool Instagram and mm-hmm. just spreading the love for Alaska and she's out there doing some pretty cool stuff. She is. No, I give you both a thank you. It's cool how you know you start you start a podcast and just you know you have a conversation with somebody, the dominoes start falling. You just never know who you're gonna meet because of that, who's listening and the conversations you're gonna have. And you know, soon enough I'll be in Alaska and I'll put the invite out there like, like I did for her. If you wanted to meet up or if we're ever in the same area, I'm more than happy to grab a drink or give your yeah. dog a, give your dog a pat and say hello and give your dog a for treat. sure. And you'll be up here in August, end of August, beginning of September. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's about when I'll be uh, making my move to Nanana and uh, yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be up there getting, getting fall training kicked off. Awesome. I'll give you my, uh, I'll give you my itinerary. We'll see if it can happen. But uh, yeah. So real quick, just to kind of touch on the animal activists, there's probably people listening to this right now that are just like, Oh, it's cruel for dogs to be doing this and you're leaving them in the cold and the freezing. I would just love to hear um, from your perspective, what your answer is to that. Um, I, yeah, there's definitely a lot of misinformation out there and I'd invite anyone to go out to any kennel and uh, just see these dogs in action, go out to the races uh, and see it for yourself before, um, you know, you start to make an opinion. Uh, But I think it's very clear that these dogs love to run and it's what they want to do. It's what they enjoy. And they're not cold. They're not freezing. They're, uh, they're not being mistreated. Um, and if they were, they wouldn't be able to do the amazing things they're able to, they can't go a thousand miles in nine days or in eight days. Um, they can't traverse mountains and things like that. Uh, these dogs have very strong personalities. If they don't want to do something, they'll just, they'll lay down for you. So if you, let's say I'm, I'm a, I'm a musher and I'm not, I don't care for my dogs and I'm not too nice to them. They're not really going to want to drive up that mountain for me. You know, they'll just lay down and go, yeah, good luck. You know, that's a good point. (laughs) That's a good, that's a very, very good point. And I promise you, there's one thing I can promise anybody listening. If, if these dogs are somewhat of a husky breed, they will be outside in like negative 60 degrees. If you let them, (laughs) they love it. They're rolling around. Um, they have a double fur coat. It's, uh, it's what they're bred for. Um, it's in their blood Mm -hmm. and they, uh, they have all the attributes to survive in these elements. Mm. 
no, like I'll bring them in the cabin. I'll be like, oh, it's, you know, 30 below out. Like, come on into the cabin. And they're like, and they're just uncomfortable panning, <laughs> you know, trying to get back outside and they go <laughs> run back to their houses, you know, and it's just like, okay. <laughs> so where, where, where are all your dogs right now? Are they with you or are they somewhere else? So they're in Nanana. Okay. Uh, the city of Anchorage wouldn't like it too much if I had 30 dogs here <laughs> and neither would my neighbors. Do you miss them? Uh, you have to miss them like crazy. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I really do. I had the opportunity to go north here just a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. take some time off from work. And um, yeah, it was, it was amazing being up there with them and seeing them. And uh, I can't wait to get back up there. Real quick, I don't want to miss this opportunity for you to also tell us what's some of the misinformation that you just mentioned that's out there that you want to clear up? Um, I mean, I, I don't even one, I try to ignore all the stuff that I see out there on social media and you know, that PETA might be putting out. Um, and of course, are there, uh, some bad apples in the, in the dog mushing world? Yeah. Um, I'm sure there is. Um, is it, is it a very, very small percentage? A hundred percent. Um, but with anything, there's a, there's a bad apple, you know? Mm. Um, so you can go in into, I think any, any sport industry business, there's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's someone out there that's just not a good person, you know? Yeah. Um, but like I said, I'd invite anyone to go take a tour uh, go out to these races, see how these mushers interact with their dogs. And I think they're going to be very pleased and impressed mm-hmm. of how well they're cared for, how well um, just they're treated and how much they want to run. Uh, you know, I, I can't make that message like any more clear. These, these dogs love it. That's great. As a dog lover and animal lover, I'm happy to hear that. I know I'm sure there's others that are happy to hear that. And my only experience with sled dogs, besides the two that are hanging out here in the air conditioning, um, (laughs) about 10, 12 years ago, I went to Anchorage on a, not Anchorage, uh, Juneau on a cruise and, you know, did one of those excursions with the sled dogs on Mendenhall Glacier, which honestly I loved. I know I mentioned that in the podcast with Erica and, uh, mm-hmm. it's, they have a couple hundred dogs up there. So obviously if you only get 10 to 12 per sled, when you go do this and the ones that were not going were pretty vocal and upset that they were not pulling the sled. You can tell that they were mad about it and they really wanted to go. So yeah, yeah. Just seeing that myself is like, Oh, these dogs really love this. They really, really <laughs> want to go. Yeah. You're hundred no, percent right. They're about it. Um, it's, it's in their blood they're a working dog. Um, dogs love to have a job and a purpose. So, um, I think it's a lot more cruel to keep a dog, you know, cooped up in the house. Yeah. Like, you know, I think there's a lot more, uh, pet owners, mm-hmm. you know, that probably mistreat their dogs and there are dog mushers, you know, probably for sure. Right. So, uh, you know, everybody wants a dog and, uh, they might, they're lucky enough if, they take it on a walk once a week or go, go throw it a ball, you know? Yeah. That, that, so, that, that pisses me off. Honestly, having like two Huskies, like I'd go for probably four to five walks a day. And I also bring them for runs and, you know, fetch in my backyard and all that. Like you're hundred percent right. I do know of people that get dogs that just 
honestly don't treat it like a family member, you know? And yeah. That, that bothers me more than anything. I hate that. So I'm really happy to hear you kind of clear up some of that misinformation. Yeah. You know, these dogs love to work and they like to have their purpose and their job and they would be going, they wouldn't be happy dogs if they weren't getting run and they weren't out there on the trails and they didn't have that purpose in life. Um, yeah, they, they would just be tearing stuff up and probably escaping from kennels. And <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be real. They're eating salmon and chicken and beaver. They're eating like better than I am. So oh, they eat like Kings, you know? So yeah. and it's true. They eat better than most, uh, most humans. That's great. I, I mean, just... it's your engine, you know, it is your engine yep. you to feed them properly. And, uh, since that conversation with Erica, I know near the tail end of that conversation, um, she mentioned Girdwood and how Girdwood has dog sledding excursion there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that at all, if you've ever been to Girdwood, but, uh, until you tell me possibly otherwise, I signed up with Alpine Air Alaska and I'm doing that with my girlfriend. Uh, Like I said, that was a highlight of my life 10 years ago and I'm going to do it again. I cannot wait to do it again. So yeah, they offer, um, so Girdwood is about 30 minutes South of where I live here in the summertime, which is Anchorage. Anchorage is the big city here. Um, so Girdwood's a cool little town. It's a, it's a ski town in the wintertime. Um, but yes, they do offer dry land tours, through there so basically you'll have a team of dogs and it's pulling like a buggy cart type of thing and it takes you uh through through some trails and a lot of them are probably like a half mile long or Mm. maybe a one mile type trail um but uh extremely fun you get to see the dogs run you get to interact with them usually there's always puppies to pet and Mm -hmm. um you know even maybe a musher or two to meet. So uh, I think, yeah, you'll definitely enjoy that. Yeah, I can't wait. It's uh, it's a, so it's, <laughs> it's a chopper that's taking up to Punchbowl Glacier, I believe. Is okay, so you're doing a glacier tour. Okay, awesome. Yeah, they're going to drop us off there. And apparently there's the sled dogs that are up there that, that are yeah. waiting for us. Yeah. Yep, and then they have the glacier tours as well. Yeah, those look freaking beautiful. I was, I'm following them on Instagram now. It's like, oh my God, these pictures are gorgeous. Oh man. <laughs> and then we're also meeting the sled dogs that are in Denali. Um, when you get into the road there, I think like mile, okay. like a few miles in, you can pull over and they have sled dogs there that you can meet. So we're definitely going to take advantage of that as well. Okay. And I think that is, um, Cody and Paige at, um, Oh, I got, I got the worst memory. <laughs> I'll tell them where we go way Squid. back. Me and Eddie go way back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Squid Acres oh, Kennel. What is it? Uh, Squid Acres Kennel. Squid Acres Kennel. And they're right there off the Denali Highway. Awesome. And I know, yeah, they they do tours there. And then um, there's uh, Jesse Holmes. He lives in Brush Canna. They're off the Denali Highway. And I, I don't think he offers tours or anything like that, but, okay. uh, he's a well-known musher and, uh, yeah, a successful musher as well. I think awesome. he placed like seventh in his rookie year running. I did a rod. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of a cool dog mushing country right there. We use that highway as a, 
basically a major training grounds. Mm. Um, yeah, for, for our dog teams. So cool. A lot of people, a lot of people head out there and they do, uh, cause you know, you're on a highway, so you can just go for basically 65 miles. If you start in Cantwell, you go 65 miles before you, uh, hit your first lodge and that's the Alpine Creek Lodge. And they are wonderful people there. They, um, rock on racing. Casey Randall is actually running tours out of there. Uh, best of my knowledge from the last I've heard they're at awesome. the Alpine Creek lodge awesome. and the owners of the lodge and, uh, Casey and her family, they're, uh, really nice folks as well. And then, uh, I don't know how far you guys are going in on the highway, but there's the McLaren lodge as well. They, uh, sponsor dog races and, um, great lodge, good people out there. I'm writing all this down. Honestly, beautiful I can't scenery. Wait. I can't wait. <laughs> Oh man. And then, um, you know, I'm just thinking here, like, yeah, we're going up to Denali. We're going to a Fairbanks for a night. Have you seen the Northern lights? Like at any point, like you probably have seen them in your life, but what about like on a race, like at night? Yes. Um, I mean, I see them a lot, especially there in the interior. So Nanana Fairbanks, that's interior Alaska. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not a bunch of city lights or anything like that. Um, I think there's like maybe 150 people that live in Nanana. I mean, wow. it's a village and it's on the road system and we're actually just North of the village. So there's no one around. So I get some pretty nice views of the Northern lights, but I think one of the best light shows that I've ever seen was um, coming into the finish of the Yukon quest 300. And I had a, I was basically battling it out for fifth place with a guy and I saw the lights and I was looking up and I'm like, man, this is beautiful, you know? And, uh, just a few moments later, he goes, turn off your headlight. He's yelling back at me and he's <laughs> like, look up. And I'm like, yeah, I see him. Like, don't try to distract me, you know, <laughs> but I did want to take like a, a minute to, you know, taking the, taking the just beauty of it all. And then I was like, all right, we got to, we got to race here. <laughs> you know, I can't be staring up at this guy. Did you so, pass him? Um, no, you know what? I took sixth place in the uh, quest and he ended up finishing like a, I think a minute and a half in front of me. So it was, it was a really close race. Um, but once again, you know, it was just one of those races where I was just trying to have fun with my dogs, mm. and, you know, just make it a positive experience. And we, uh, we tried to give it a little push there at the end and see if we could, uh, maybe, maybe pass them up, but I had a dog tangle and, you know, that little split second of a stop, you know, basically yeah. get dogs untangled and yeah. he, he pulled away. So, but it was a good time. That's, I mean, that's awesome. That's the best way to approach it is just go out there, you know, have a good time, see what you got. Mm -hmm. And then uh, hopefully even more success next year. But it sounds like you've already had plenty right from the start, which is <laughs> awesome. It's so cool. Just, I'm just curious. I know, uh, you know, I don't have kids, like I said, but I'm sure most parents probably have some of their favorite kids. Which, uh, which dogs would you say um, are you more of your all-stars? Um, Blunt, he's, he's my lead dog. He's got me through, uh, some, you know, some of, I guess my, my toughest obstacles out there on the trail and him and I have, uh, 
an extremely good bond. And basically from when I first met him, I knew I was like, yep, you're going to be my leader. So that's what we worked on. I made him, you know, basically captain of the team and the other dogs know it and they see it. So he, he responds very well to me and he performs and uh, yeah, he's, he's what's made uh, a lot of my success possible. How old is Blunt? Blunt is a, uh, he's a four-year-old right now. So he's actually the uh, oldest dog on the team uh, on that was on my race team. I had a lot of two-year-olds um, on my team. So yeah, Blunt, Blunt was kind of my main man. And then his son, he has a son on my team, Swenson. And uh, he's a, he's a big gun, but uh, he's a powerhouse. He's just kind of a big meathead. He's not quite as smart as his dad, but uh, <laughs> he's a, he's a good leader. And um, I think he'll, he'll shape up to be uh, an all-star too. And I love them all, of course. Mm-hmm. And um but yeah, Blunt's kind of my, if I had to pick one, you know, for my main standout. And so, yeah, your team is super young. At what point do the dogs usually retire and hang them up? So they have a prime racing age from three to seven. That's basically their prime age. Before three, the dogs are not fully developed, their metabolisms, their body, their muscles, everything. So if um you can race a young team of course you know like i i did i I raced a team of two-year-olds um but you know you you can't push them and you can't i guess run as competitive as a schedule um if you want to have the best interest of your dogs right yeah having um a dog that just turned four and one that's I think 10 months old now is uh, yeah, I'm aware. Like you can't take them for super long, strenuous hikes and runs and run them into the ground until, you know, a couple of years of age till they're more developed and grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you can go through the motions and show them it, you know, mm-hmm. and they can kind of get the lay of the land. Uh, but they have a harder time keeping the weight on. Um, Though, since their muscles aren't fully developed as well, and they're um, still growing in that aspect, you know, you're going to have a lot more sore muscles and maybe some sore wrists and tendons and joints and things like that. And mm-hmm. um, that's not something you want to put those young dogs through. You just right. want to build that foundation, kind of take them <clears throat> through the motions mm-hmm. and uh, develop them slowly. Yeah. Keep it enjoyable too. You know, like you were saying, yeah. like they want to go and do it, you know, keep it fun for them too. Yep. And then when it t- comes time to race, they're good. They love it, you right. know, yep. and they get in that race environment and they see the other dogs, they get competitive just like we do. They get all macho, they get testosterone going, <laughs> you know, they <laughs> they're get all rowdy and stuff. So um, they get in that environment and they want to win. Is there a difference? Cause you just said testosterone as far as like <laughs> male and female dogs is, uh, you know, how many are of each are on a team? Um, each kennel has got their preference. Um, sometimes the musher doesn't even have the option of having a preference, you know, it's just kind of mm-hmm. like, 
this is what I have and this is what I'm working with and that's all. So it kind of depends on how your litters go and your breedings. Male, there's some mushers that like a full male dominant team. Males are a little bigger, obviously not having any females in there. You don't have like, you're not dealing with females in heat and males trying to get after the females, things like that. So (laughs) that can, that's always a wonderful thing to go through, especially (laughs) during a race. Um, But it happens. It's just part of the sport. Got to manage your team. Got to keep everybody focused. That could be a big advantage though, right? If you go first and your females in heat, just leaving down the tracks for others, <laughs> for the teams behind be, you. It can be a distraction. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For those uh, teams <laughs> behind, but everybody's dealing with it. You got a bunch of horny males out there. <laughs> it's chaos. <laughs> I can't imagine that on top of a, a, you know, a team full of sled dogs as it is. Oh man. But I, the females are, um, I, I have like a, probably a 27 pound female on my team and she is probably the most fearless dog on that team. She's just a hard driving vocal. I mean, she's got some attitude on her. What's, what's her name? Petra. Petra. And she's just full of spunk. I, I love having her in the team. She gets the team all wound up and she's like a cheerleader, you know, she pulls hard. So she, she earns her spot. So Eddie, when can we see you next? When is your next race? Cause I know you September 1st is when the training starts. What's next for yep, you? September 1st uh, is when training starts. Then my first race will be the Cusco 300. And that starts that second to third week of January, somewhere right around in there. Okay. Uh, so that's when I'll make my race debut for this season. And then um, I'll be running uh, the B team and that Aaron will actually be going up there with me and he's going to be racing uh, the A team and uh, his basically I did a rod team. He'll be racing in, in the Cusco. And then after I did a rod, we have the Kobuk 440 and I'll take my team up there to that and probably um, a lot of his dogs as well, if they're fully recovered and looking healthy, um, to compete in that, then, uh, they'll go again. Are these all Alaska based races? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So the Cusco 300 is in Bethel and the Kobuk 440 is in Kotzebue. Okay. And is there a, let's say a website or anything that people should go to, to kind of keep tabs on any of these races and the places? So if they, if they want to keep tabs, um, Facebook is a good place. Um, both organizations have a Facebook page. There's also dog mushing pages that post, you know, updates and sled dog news and pictures and things like that. So I believe there's a page called, um, well, there's always an Iditarod. It's called Iditarod 2021. And then obviously every year that changes, you know, keeps up with the date. And then there's Alaska Mushing News. I started this page called Table 200 and Table 200 Mushing Insider. And that's kind of when I was first getting into the sport and I was doing race updates. But we just kind of more focused on I did a rod uh, race updates, but we try to promote some of the other races. But since I have been so involved with dog mushing, that's all kind of been put on the back burner. And uh, I haven't really been a 
keeping up to date on that. <laughs> yeah, you're a busy guy. I mean, if there's any yeah. of these websites or anything, social media sites that you want me to link, I can put it in the show notes. And I would love for you to give the opportunity to tell people where they can find you personally to keep tabs on you. Yeah, um, I post more so often on my Instagram page, Eddie B. Jr. And um, also people can look me up on Facebook, Eddie Burke Jr., and uh, I post on there as well. And throughout the mushing season, I'll be given updates on how my training's going and basically preparing for these races and going to these races. And uh, usually I give a little recap um, afterwards as well. That's great. I'm so glad we connected because I'll definitely be keeping tabs on that. I'm really excited to see how you do. And honestly, really cool to see you kind of shoot out of the gates pretty fast out of your career. So, you know, who knows, maybe I am actually talking to a future Iditarod champion here. That would be freaking awesome. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a pretty big goal to have, but I'm shooting for it. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not in the sport to, to be mediocre. So I want to, I want to be the best musher I possibly can be. And I want to raise a group of talented, successful dogs and, you know, if it, if it shakes out that way to where I win some races, awesome. If not, you know, I, I know I'm going to, you know, have fun and my dog's going to have fun and we're going to enjoy the process. So that's the best, that's the best mentality you can have. Sometimes yeah. I'm terrible at that. Sometimes I'm just way too competitive. <laughs> so, Hey, I'm jealous. You know, I mean, winning is fun. You know, I've, I've, like I said, I've been an athlete all my life and, uh, one of my uh, coaches growing up, you know, he's just always pounding in our heads, you know, <laughs> playing football. Uh, even as like third and fourth graders, he'd be sitting there telling us, you know, Vince Lombardi quote, you know, winning uh, isn't everything. It's the only thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's mm-hmm. losing ain't fun. Yeah. <laughs> so it uh, definitely got a competitive, uh, I don't know, that competitive drive going in me at a young age. So I've always tried to put in the work and be successful at whatever I'm doing. Now, do they still do the fantasy dog sled leaks? Because I'm just thinking out loud, like you starting because you were in a league and now you're going to be in the league for people to take you. How cool is that? Yeah. So there is, there is one, it's called fantasymushing.com our fantasy mushing league. And I believe they have a website called fantasymushing.com. They do one for, I did a rod. I want to say they also do some for some other mid distance races. The one that I was doing, it was just like with a group of buddies. I was a garbage man at the time. I was, so it's just a bunch of rowdy garbage men <laughs> betting on dog mushers. And uh, then, yeah, we decided to go down to the banquet one night and, get a little sauced up and started talking <laughs> trash and we made some friends, but it, uh, yeah, it developed into, uh, being a full, full-time dog. That's master. crazy. That's just a crazy story and how it shaped, you know, your life. It really shaped your life and your passions. And now you're going to be the number one overall fantasy pick in 2022 for the Iditarod. How awesome is that? <laughs> I don't know about all that, but you know, uh, it, it definitely has been a wild ride and it's been extremely fun and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the future. It's, but yes, it's my lifestyle now living off grid, living up North with 
30 dogs and just the simplicity of it all. It's, it's a beautiful thing and I wouldn't have my life any other way. That sounds wonderful. Um, I'm jealous of that. I don't know if I can do that 365, um, <laughs> but I would like that uh, occasionally that's for sure. And I'm going to get a taste of that here in a few weeks. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, no, I'm excited that you get to go do that uh, glacier tour. I yeah. think you'll have a good time with that. And uh, yeah, check out those dogs that are on the Denali highway. Uh, I don't know what your plans are there. Jeff King also with uh, Husky Homestead Tours. Nice. Jeff King's a uh, four-time Iditarod champion. Wow. And okay. he's got um, his, uh, I guess, up-and-coming musher, his, his prodigy, Amanda Otto. She's going to be running her rookie year in Iditarod uh, this year, and she's uh, kind of running the operations there and giving tours. So definitely good people to go see. Right out of curiosity. So you just said she's, you know, a prodigy coming up. Do you see her as a rival or a friendly, I guess, acquaintance? <laughs> um, I think we all keep it pretty friendly in the dog mushing world. Of course, like when we're out there on the trail, we're all, uh, you know, especially those guys that are up there in the front of the pack, you know, yeah. um, they're competitive. They all want to win, but we're all buddies. It's a small community, you know, mm -hmm. and we all support each other and we're all out there having a good time. It's, um, it's a pretty cool dynamic. I'm sure I'll be seeing her out there on the, on the Iditarod trail here in, uh, 20, uh, 23. So I'm excited. All right, Eddie, go kick Amanda's butt. Sorry, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> But no, this is, this was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, I'll be definitely be keeping tabs on the Iditarod even more now. And it's really cool. You gave some really great insight into what that entails and just what dog sledding entails. With. Yeah. It's, um, kind of hard to like really dive into it fully, but, uh, kind of scratch the surface at least and get yeah. some general knowledge out there. But like I said, I, any opportunity to spread the love for the sport, you know, whether I, after this podcast, you know, you, you've become a, a fan of dog mushing and maybe one more might, you know, it all, yeah. it adds up, it helps. And maybe they'll tell their friends and keep this sport alive. Yeah. And it's awareness, you know, at the very least it's awareness and, yep. you know, I really do love hearing the fact that the, the dogs love it. The dogs are treated well. And I know people are going to take that away from this too. And that's super important to people. So I think that's great. hundred percent. And, um, you know, if you get a, if you find a dog musher that you, you really like and do some research, watch some videos, interviews, clips, mm -hmm. whatever, maybe someone catches your eye. The chances are that they probably run a tour operation here in Alaska. So for anybody else listening, or maybe they're already a fan of it, you know, look up your, your favorite mushers and see where their tours are based out of and go pay them a visit. That's a great point support their operations you know and um it supports the sport well eddie you're welcome back on anytime uh maybe after even this season if you want to report back to see how your season went and how the dogs are doing and uh yeah i'd love to have you back yeah keep me no posted. i'd love to i'd love to do that yeah we can uh do a recap of uh the mushing season this winter this is what the pursuit of happiness is about you found your passion <laughs> you're going after it and now we have a rock star on the podcast. I can't wait to see what the future holds for you. So Eddie, thank you very, very much. <laughs> no, thank you. We'll stay in touch. All right. Yep, we'll do. Thank you.
A big thank you once again to Eddie Burke Jr. That was awesome. I learned so much about the sport of dog racing and dog mushing. He certainly has some stories to share, so I can't wait to have him back on in the near future and talk about this upcoming season. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please subscribe, please follow, please leave me a review and follow me on Instagram at the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. And you can also check out the website, IamRyanMcGuire.com slash podcast. That is IamRyanMcGuire.com slash podcast. And if you want to be featured on a show or if you know someone that does, you can always fill out the form right there. So once again, thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the Pursuit of Happiness podcast.